0: 51. Circumstance which has given its name to a Sanskrit work, the Mahadhinish Gramana Sutra, or Sutra of the Great Renunciation, next is related an event in which we may again see a subjective experience given under the form of an objective reality, Mara, the Great Tempter, appears in the sky, and urges Gautama to stop, promising him, in seven days, a universal kingdom over the four great continents if he will but give up his enterprise when his words fail to have any effect, the tempter consoles himself by the confident hope that he will still overcome his enemy, saying, sooner or later some lustful or malicious or angry thought must arise in his mind, in that moment I shall be his master, and from that hour, adds the legend, as a shadow always follows the body, so he too from that day always followed the blessed one, striving to throw every obstacle in his way towards the Buddhahood, Gautama rides a long distance that night, only stopping at the banks of the Anoma beyond the Kholian territory. There, on the sandy bank of the river, at a spot where later Piety erected a Dagabro solid dome-shaped relic shrine, he cuts off with his sword his long flowing locks, and, taking off his ornaments, sends them and the horse back in charge of the unwilling Chana to Cape Ilavastu. The next seven days were spent alone in a grove of mango trees b.04p.0684 nearby. Once the recluse walks onto a Rajagriha, the capital of Magadha, and residence of Mbisara, one of the then most powerful rulers in the valley of the Ganges, he was favorably received by the Raja, but though asked to do so, he would not as yet assume the responsibilities of a teacher. He attached himself first to a Brahmin's office named Alara, and afterwards to another named Udraka, from whom he learned all that Indian philosophy had then to teach, still unsatisfied. He next retired to the jungle of Uruvla, on the most northerly spur of the Vindir Range of Mountains, and there for six years, attended by five faithful disciples, he gave himself up to the severest penance and self-torture, till his fame as an ascetic spread in all the country round about, like the sound, says the Burmese chronicle, of a great bell hung in the canopy of the skies, that last one day, when he was walking in a much enfeebled state, he felt on a sudden an extreme weakness like that caused by dire starvation, and unable to stand any longer he fell to the ground, some thought he was dead, but he recovered, and from that time took regular food and gave up his severe penance, so much so that his five disciples soon ceased to respect him, and leaving him went to the Naras, there now ensued a second struggle in Gautama's mind, described with all the wealth of poetry and imagination of which the Indian mind is master, the crisis culminated on a day, each event of which is surrounded in the Buddhist accounts with the wildest legends, on which the very thoughts passing through the mind of Buddha appear in gorgeous descriptions as angels of darkness or of light. To us, now taught by the experiences of centuries how weak such exaggerations are compared with the effect of a plain and varnished tale. These legends may appear childish or absurd, but they have a depth of meaning to those who strive to read between the lines of such rude and inarticulate attempts to describe the indescribable. That which the previous and subsequent career of the teacher being born in mind seems to be possible and even probable, appears to be somewhat as follows. Disenchanted and dissatisfied, Gautamot had given up all that most men value, to seek peace in secluded study and self-denial, failing to attain his object by learning the wisdom of others, and living the simple life of a student. He had devoted himself to that intense meditation and penance which all philosophers then said would raise men above the gods. Still unsatisfied, longing always for a certainty that seemed ever just beyond his grasp, he had added vigil to vigil, and penance to penance, until at last, when to the wondering view of others he had become more than a saint, his bodily strength and his indomitable resolution and faith had together suddenly and completely broken down. Then, when the sympathy of others would have been most welcome, he found his friends falling away from him, and his disciples leaving him for other teachers. Soon after, If not on the very day when his followers had left him, he wandered out towards the banks of the Niranjara, receiving his morning meal from the hands of Sujata, the daughter of a neighboring villager, and set himself down to eat it under the shade of a large tree of ficus religiosa, to be known from that time as the sacred bow tree or tree of wisdom. There he remained through the long hours of that day debating with himself what next to do. All his old temptations came back upon him with renewed force. For years he had looked at all earthly good through the medium of a philosophy which taught him that it, without exception, contained within itself the seeds of bitterness, and was altogether worthless and impermanent, but now to his wavering faith the sweet delights of home and love, the charms of wealth and power, began to show themselves in a different light, and glow again with attractive colors. He doubted, and agonized in his doubt, but as the sun set, the religious side of his nature had won the victory and seems to have come out even purified from the struggle, he had attained to nirvana, had become clear in his mind, a Buddha, an enlightened one, from that night he not only did not claim any merit on account of his self-mortification, but took every opportunity of declaring that from such penances no advantage at all would be derived. All that night he is said to have remained in deep meditation under the bow tree, and the Orthodox Buddhists believe that for seven times seven nights and days he continued fasting near the spot, when the Archangel Brahma came and ministered to him, as for himself, his heart was now fixed, his mind was made up, but he realized more than he had ever done before the power of temptation, and the difficulty, the almost impossibility, of understanding and holding to the truth for others subject to the same temptations, but without that earnestness and insight which he felt himself to possess, faith might be quite impossible, and it would only be waste of time and trouble to try to show to them the only path of peace. To a one in his position this thought would be so very natural, that we need not hesitate to accept the fact of its occurrence as related in the oldest records. It is quite consistent with his whole career that it was love and pity for others otherwise, as it seemed to him helplessly doomed and lost which at last overcame every other consideration, and made Gotama resolve to announce his doctrine to the world. The teacher, now thirty-five years of age, intended to proclaim his new gospel first to his old teachers at El and Udraka, but finding that they were dead, he determined to address himself to his former five disciples, and accordingly went to the deer forest near Banaras where they were then living, an old G-A-T-H-A or him translated in Vinaya texts, I-90 tells us how the Buddha, wrapped with the idea of his great mission, meets an acquaintance, one Upaka, a wandering sophist, on the way, the latter, struck with his expression, asks him whose religion it is that makes him so glad, and yet so calm, the reply is striking, I am now on my way, says the Buddha, to the city of Panaras, to beat the drum of the Ambrosia to set up the light of the doctrine of nirvana in the darkness of the world, and he proclaims himself the Buddha who alone knows and knows no teacher. The Buddha says, "You profess yourself then, friend, to be an arahant and a conqueror." The Buddha says, "Those indeed are conquerors who, as I have now, have conquered the intoxications, the mental intoxication arising from ignorance, sensuality, or craving after future life. Evil dispositions have ceased in me. Therefore, is it that I am conqueror?" His acquaintance rejoins, "In that case." venerable Gautama, your way lies yonder, and he himself, shaking his head, turns in the opposite direction, nothing daunted, the new prophet walked on to the naras, and in the cool of the evening went on to the deer forest where the five ascetics were living, seeing him coming, they resolved not to recognize as a superior one who had broken his vows, to address him by his name, and not as master, or teacher, only, he being a kshatrina, to offer him a seat, He understands their change of manner, calmly tells them not to mock him by calling him the Venerable Gautama, that he has found the ambrosia of truth and can lead them to it. They object, naturally enough, from the ascetic point of view, that he had failed before while he was keeping his body under. And how can his mind have won the victory now, when he serves and yields to his body? Buddha replies by explaining to them the principles of his new gospel, in the form of noble truths. And the noble eightfold path see Buddhism. It is nearly certain that Buddha had a commanding presence, and one of those deep, rich, thrilling voices which so many of the successful leaders of men have possessed. We know his deep earnestness, and his thorough conviction of the truth of his new gospel. When we further remember the relation which the five students mentioned above had long borne to him, and that they had passed through a similar culture, it is not difficult to understand that his persuasions were successful and that his old disciples were the first to acknowledge him in his new character. The later books say that they were all converted at once, but, according to the most ancient Pali record though their old love and reverence had been so rekindled when the Buddha came near that their cold resolutions quite broke down, and they vied with each other in such acts of personal attention as an in p0685 Indian disciple loves to pay to his teacher. Yet it was only after the Buddha had for five days talked to them, sometimes separately, sometimes together, that they accepted in its entirety his plan of salvation. The Buddha then remained at the deer forest near Benares until the number of his personal followers was about three score, and that of the outside believers somewhat greater. The principal among the former was a rich young man named Yasa, who had first come to him at night out of fear of his relations, and afterwards shaved his head, put on the yellow robe, and succeeded in bringing many of his former friends and companions to the teacher. His mother and his wife being the first female disciples. And his father the first lay devotee. It should be noticed in passing that the idea of a priesthood with mystical powers is altogether repugnant to Buddhism. Everyone's salvation is entirely dependent on the modification or growth of his own inner nature. Resulting from his own exertions the life of a recluse is held to be the most conducive to that state of sweet serenity at which the most ardent disciples aim, but that of a layman, of a believing householder, is held in high honor, and a believer who does not as yet feel himself able or willing to cast off the ties of home or of business, may yet enter the paths, and by a life of rectitude and kindness ensure for himself a rebirth under more favorable conditions for his growth in holiness. After the rainy season Gautama called together those of his disciples who had devoted themselves to the higher life, and said to them, I am free from the five hindrances which, like an immense net, hold men and angels in their power, you to owing to my teaching are set free. Go ye now, brethren, and wander for the gain and welfare of the many, out of compassion for the world, to the benefit of gods and men, preach the doctrine, beauteous in inception, beauteous in continuation, beauteous in its end. Proclaim the pure and perfect life. Let no two go together. I also go, brethren, to the general's village in the wilds of Uruval A. Eh? Throughout his career, Gautama yearly adopted the same plan, collecting his disciples round him in the rainy season, and after it was over traveling about as an itinerant preacher, but in subsequent years he was always accompanied by some of his most attached disciples. In the solitudes of Uruval there were at this time three brothers, fire worshippers and hermit philosophers who had gathered round them a number of scholars, and enjoyed a considerable reputation as teachers, got a mall settled among them, and after a time they became believers in his system, the elder brother, Kosapon, taking henceforth the principal place among his followers, his first set sermon to his new disciples is called by Bishop Big Andy, the Sermon on the Mount, its subject was a jungle fire which broke out on the opposite hillside, he warned his hearers against the fires of concupiscence, anger, ignorance, birth, death, decay and anxiety, and taking each of the senses in order he compared all human sensations to a burning flame which seems to be something it is not, which produces pleasure and pain, but passes rapidly away, and ends only in destruction. Accompanied by his new disciples, the Buddha walked on to Arajagaha, the capital of kingdom Bizarra, who, not unmindful of their former interview, came out to welcome him, seeing Kasapa. Who, as the chronicle puts it, was as well known to them as the banner of the city. The people at first doubted who was the teacher and who the disciple. But Kasapa put an end to their hesitation by stating that he had now given up his belief in the efficacy of sacrifices either great or small, that Nirvana was a state of rest to be attained only by a change of heart, and that he had become a disciple of the Buddha. Gautama and spoke to the king on the miseries of the world which arise from passion and on the possibility of release by following the way of salvation. Vyaraja invited him and his disciples to eat their simple midday meal at his house on the following morning, and then presented the Buddha with a garden called Vellumvana or bamboo grove, afterwards celebrated as the place where the Buddha spent many rainy seasons, and preached many of his most complete discourses. There he taught for some time, attracting large numbers of hearers, among whom two, Asariputta and Magalana who afterwards became conspicuous leaders in the new crusade, then joined the Sangha or society, as the Buddha's order of mendicants was called. Meanwhile the prophet's father, Suddhodana, who had anxiously watched his son's career, heard that he had given up his asceticism, and had appeared as a wanderer, an itinerant preacher and teacher. He sent therefore to him, urging him to come home, that he might see him once more before he died. The Buddha accordingly started for Kapilavastu, and stopped according to his custom in a grove outside the town. His father and uncles and others came to see him there, but the latter were angry, and would pay him no reverence. It was the custom to invite such teachers and their disciples for the next day's meal, but they all left without doing so the next day. Therefore, Gotama set out at the usual hour, carrying his bowl to beg for a meal. As he entered the city, he hesitated whether he should not go straight to his father's house but determined to adhere to his custom, it soon reached his father's ears that his son was walking through the streets begging, startled at such news he rose up, seizing the end of his outer robe, and hastened to the place where Gautama was, exclaiming, illustrious Buddha, why do you expose us all to such shame, is it necessary to go from door to door begging your food, do you imagine that I am not able to supply the wants of so many mendicants, my noble father, was the reply. This is the custom of all our race. How so? said his father. Are you not descended from an illustrious line? No single person of our race has ever acted so indecorously. My noble father, said Gautama, you and your family may claim the privileges of Kshatriya descent. My descent is from the prophets Buddhas of old, and they have always acted so. The customs of the law Dharma are good both for this world and the world that is to come. But, my father, when a man has found a treasure, it is his duty to offer the most precious of the jewels to his father first. Do not delay. Let me share with you the treasure I have found, said Odena. abashed, took his son's bowl and led him to his house. Eighteen months had now elapsed since the turning point of Gotama's career his great struggle under the bow tree. Thus far all the accounts follow chronological order. From this time they simply narrate disconnected stories about the Buddha, or the persons with whom he was brought into contact. The same story being usually found in more than one account, but not often in the same order. It is not as yet possible, except very partially, to arrange chronologically the snatches of biography to be gleaned from these stories. They are mostly told to show the occasion on which some memorable act of the Buddha took place, or some memorable saying was uttered, and are as exact as to place as they are indistinct as to time. It would be impossible within the limits of this article to give any large number of them but space may be found for one or two. A merchant from S.U. having joined the society was desirous of preaching to his relations, and is said to have asked Gautama's permission to do so. The people of S.U. said the teacher, are exceedingly violent. If they revile you what will you do? I will make no reply, said the mendicant. And if they strike you, I will not strike in return, was the reply. And if they try to kill you, death is no evil in itself many even desire it, to escape from the vanities of life, but I shall take no steps either to hasten or to delay the time of my departure, these answers were held satisfactory, and the monk started on his mission, that another time a rich farmer held a harvest home, and the Buddha, wishing to preach to him, is said to have taken his alms bowl and stood by the side of the field and begged, the farmer, a wealthy bear said to him, why do you come and beg, B.04P.0686 I plow and sow and earn my food, you should do the same. I too. O Brahmin, said the beggar, plow and sow, and having plowed and sown I eat. You profess only to be a farmer, no one sees your plowing. What do you mean? said the Brahmin. For my cultivation, said the beggar, faith is the seed, self-combat is the fertilizing rain, the weeds I destroy are the cleaving to existence, wisdom is my plow. And its guiding shaft is modesty, perseverance draws my plough, and I guide it with the rein of my mind, the field I work is in the law, and the harvest that I reap is the never-dying nectar of Nirvana. Those who reap this harvest destroy all the weeds of sorrow. On another occasion he is said to have brought back to her right mind a young mother whom sorrow had for a time deprived of reason. Her name was my she had been married early, as is the custom in the East, and had a child when she was still a girl. When the beautiful boy could run alone he died. The young girl in her love for it carried the dead child clasped to her bosom, and went from house to house of her pitying friends asking them to give her medicine for it. But the Buddhist convert thinking, she does not understand, said to her, My good girl, I myself have no such medicine as you ask for, but I think I know of one who has. Oh, tell me who that is, said Kizagatamai, the Buddha can give you medicine, go to him, was the answer. She went to Gautama, and doing homage to him said, Lord and Master, do you know any medicine that will be good for my child? Yes, I know of some, said the teacher. Now it was the custom for patients or their friends to provide the herbs which the doctors required, so she asked what herbs he would want. I want some mustard seed, he said, and when the poor girl eagerly promised to bring some of so common a drug, he added, you must get it from some house where no son, or husband, Or parent or slave has died. Very good. She said, and went to ask for it. Still carrying her dead child with her. The people said, Here is mustard seed. Take it. But when she asked, In my friend's house has any son died? Or a husband? Or a parent or slave? They answered, Lady, what is this that you say? The living are few, but the dead are many. Then she went to other houses. But one said, I have lost a son. Another, we have lost our parents. Another, I have lost my slave. At last, not being able to find a single house where no one had died, her mind began to clear, and summoning up resolution she left the dead body of her child in a forest, and returning to the Buddha paid him homage. He said to her, Have you the mustard seed, my lord? She replied, I have not, the people tell me that the living are few, but the dead are many. Then he talked to her on that essential part of his system, the impermanency of all things. Till her doubts were cleared away, she accepted her lot, became a disciple, and entered the first path. For forty-five years after entering on his mission Gautama itinerated in the valley of the Ganges, not going farther than about 250 meters from Banaras, and always spending the rainy months at one spot usually at one of the Viharas, or homes, which had been given to the society. In the twentieth year his cousin Ananda became a mendicant and from that time seems to have attended on the Buddha, being constantly near him, and delighting to render him all the personal service which love and reverence could suggest. Another cousin, Devadatta, the son of the Araja of Kohli, also joined the society, but became envious of the teacher, and stirred up a too, who, having killed his father Bimbisara, had become king of Rajagaha to persecute Gotama. The account of the manner in which the Buddha is said to have overcome the wicked devices of this apostate cousin and his parricide protector is quite legendary, but the general fact of Ajada opposition to the new sect and of his subsequent conversion may be accepted. The confused and legendary notices of the journeyings of Gautama are succeeded by tolerably clear accounts of the last few days of his life. On a journey towards kusinara a town about 120 meters north-northeast of Banaras, and about 80 meters to east of Cape Ilavastu. the teacher, being then 80 years of age, had rested for a short time in a grove at P.A.W.A. presented to the society by a goldsmith of that place named Chanda. Chanda prepared for the mendicants a midday meal, and after the meal the Buddha started for Kusinara. he had not gone far when he was obliged to rest, and soon afterwards he said, Ananda, I am thirsty, and they gave him water to drink, Halfway between the two towns flows the river Kukeshte, there got him arrested again, and bathed for the last time, feeling that he was dying, and careful lest Chunda should be reproached by himself or others, he said to Ananda, after I am gone tell Chanda that he will receive in a future birth very great reward, for, having eaten of the food he gave me, I am about to die, and if he should still doubt, say that it was from my own mouth that you heard this. There are two gifts which will be blessed above all others. Namely, such a TAS gift before I attain wisdom under the bow tree, and this gift of Chandas before I pass away. After halting again and again the party at length reached the river Hiranyavati, close by Kusinara and therefore the last time the teacher rested, lying down under some cell trees, with his face towards the south. He talked long and earnestly with Ananda about his burial and about certain rules which were to be observed by the society after his death. Towards the end of this conversation, when it was evening, Ananda broke down and went aside to a week, but the Buddha missed him, and sending for him comforted him with the promise of nirvana, and repeated what he had so often said before about the impermanence of all things. Oh, Ananda, do not weep, do not let yourself be troubled, you know what I have said, sooner or later we must part from all we hold most dear. This body of ours contains within itself the power which renews its strength for a time, but also the causes which lead to its destruction. Is there anything put together which shall not dissolve? But you, too, shall be free from this delusion, this world of sense, this law of change. Beloved, added he, speaking to the rest of the disciples, Ananda for long years has served me with devoted affection. And he spoke to them at some length on the kindness of Ananda, about midnight Subhedra, A Brahmin philosopher of Kusinari came to ask some questions of the Buddha, but Ananda, fearing that this might lead to a longer discussion than the Sikh teacher could bear, would not admit him. Gautama heard the sound of their talk, and asking what it was, told them to let Subhedra come. The latter began by asking whether the six great teachers knew all laws, or whether there were some that they did not know, or knew only partially. This is not the time, was the answer, for such discussions. To true wisdom there is only one way, the path that is laid down in my system. Many have already followed it, and conquering the lust and pride and anger of their own hearts, have become free from ignorance and doubt and wrong belief, have entered the calm state of universal kindliness, and have reached Nirvana even in this life. O Subhedra, I do not speak to you of things I have not experienced, since I was twenty-nine years old till now I have striven after pure and perfect wisdom. And following the good path, had found Nirvana. A rule had been made that no follower of the rival system should be admitted to the society without four months probation. So deeply did the words or the impressive manner of the dying teacher work upon Subhedra that he asked to be admitted at once, and Gautama granted his request. Then turning to his disciples he said, When I have passed away and am no longer with you, do not think that the Buddha has left you, and is not still in your midst. You had my words. My explanations of the deep things of truth. The laws I have laid down for the society, let them be your guide, the Buddha has not left you. Soon afterwards he again spoke to them, urging them to reverence one another, and rebuked one of the disciples who spoke v.04p.0687 indiscriminately all that occurred to him. Towards the morning he asked whether anyone had any doubt about the Buddha, the law or the society, if so, he would clear them up. No one answered. And Ananda expressed his surprise that amongst so many none should doubt, and all be firmly attached to the law. But the Buddha laid stress on the final perseverance of the saints, saying that even the least among the disciples who had entered the first path only, still had his heart fixed on the way to perfection, and constantly strove after the three higher paths. No doubt, he said, can be found in the mind of a true disciple. After another pause he said, Behold now, brethren. This is my exhortation to you. Decay is inherent in all component things. Work out. Therefore, your emancipation with diligence. These were the last words the Buddha spoke. Shortly afterwards he became unconscious. And in that state passed away. Authorities on the life of the Buddha. Canonical P.O. reached their present shape before the 4th century B.C., episodes only. Three of them long, one birth, text in Majima Nikaya. Education Trentner and Chalmers London. Peely Text Society. 1888-1899. Volume I. Pages 118-124. Also in Anguttara Nikaya, Education Morris and Hardy Peely Text Society. 1888-1900. Volume I. Pages 130-132. To Iteration of the Babe, Old Ballad, Text in Sudanipata. Education Fausboil Peely Text Society. 1884. Pages 128-131. Translation by the same in Sacred Books of the East Oxford, 1881. Volume X pages 124, 131. Three Youth at Home, text in Anguttara Nikaya, I. 145. For the Going Forth, Old Ballad, text in Sudenipata, pages 70-74 London, 1896. Pages 99-101, Prose Account in Ida Nicaia, Education R. H. East Davids and Carpenter Peoli Text Society. 1890 1893. Volume I, page 115. Translated by R. H. E. Davids in Dialogues of the Buddha, Oxford. 1899. Pages 147 149. 5 First Long Episode, The Going Forth. Years of Study and Penance. Attainment of Nirvana and Buddhahood. And Conversion of First Five Converts, Text in Majima. Altogether at E. I. 93. Parts repeated at I. 163 175. B.I. 212, Vinaya. Education Oldenburg, London. 1879-1883. Volume I, pages 113. Six-second long episode, from the conversation of the five down to the end of the first year of the teaching, text in Vinaya. I-1344. Translated by Oldenburg in Vinaya texts. I-73-151. Seven visit to K. text in Vinaya. I-82. Translation by Oldenburg in Vinaya Texts Oxford. 1881-1885. Volume I, pages 207-210. A third long episode, The Last Days, text in D.I. ya the Mauparini Venusuddhika. Volume I. Pages 70-168. Translated by R.H. Davids in Buddhist Suttas Oxford. 1881. Pages 1-136. Buddhist Sanskrit Texts. I Imavasta probably 2nd century BC, edited by Senart 3 volumes, Paris, 1880-1897. Summary in French prefixed to each volume, down to the end of first year of the teaching. To Vistara, probably 1st century BC, edited by Mitra Calcutta, 1877, translated into French by Futka Paris, 1884, down to the first sermon, 3 Buddha Caritas, by A. S. Vagpasha probably 2nd century AD edited by Clowell-Oxford, 1892, translated by Clowell-Oxford, 1894. SBE volumes 6. an elegant poem, stops just before the attainment of Buddhahood. These three works reproduce and amplify the above episode's nose. 1-6, they retain here and there a very old tradition as to arrangement of clauses or turns of expression. Later PLE, the commentary on the Jayataka, written probably in the 5th century AD gives a consecutive narrative, from the birth to the end of the second year of the teaching, based on the canonical texts, but much altered and amplified, edited by Fausboil in Jayataka, Volume I London, 1877, pages 194, translated by R. H. E. Davids in Buddhist Birth Stories London, 1880, pages 1133, Modern Works, by Tibetan, Life of the Buddha, episodes collected and translated by W. Woodville Rockhill, London, 1884. From Tibetan texts of the 9th and 10th centuries A.D. to Sinhalese, episodes collected and translated by Spence Hardy from Sinhalese texts of the 12th and later centuries. In Manual of Buddhism London, 1897. 2nd edition. Pages 138-359. 3 Burmese, The Life or Legend of God of 3rd edition. London, 1880 by the right ref, P. Andy, translated from a Burmese work of A.D. 1773, the Burmese island in its turn, a translation from a P.L.E. work of a known date, it gives the whole life, and is the only consecutive biography we have, for Cambodian, Patama Sambodian, translated into free.